If you will turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. This has been a very convicting and, and challenging text for me, uh, especially, I think, I think because, as Keith mentioned, Terry and I are moving. We've got a house under contract in, in Oklahoma, and uh, we're moving to be closer to her folks. And I am reminded, we, the house we live in now, we bought in 2015. And going through this process of, of buying another home uh, has, how do I say it, it's, it's almost overwhelming. Like it's, it just almost uh, consumes all of your thought and all of your headspace, all of your mental energy when you're, you're going through a transition like that. And so this passage, uh, you can see the title of the, the message today is Missional Focus. And staying focused on the mission that Jesus has given us in a world of so many competing voices and so many competing priorities. And I've, I've been so convicted and multiple times as I've been praying in preparation for this, I've just been thinking, I don't think my life lines up with this right now. And so I need God to do a work in my heart. I hope that he'll minister to you, but, uh, uh, but I need his ministry to me too. So let's pray together uh, as we dig into the text. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Uh, Our lives are for you. You called us for your own purposes. I ask you to meet us right now, and I pray that as we we talk about this single-minded commitment to pursuing your will and and, um, partnering with you, the work in the heart of every person here. May your goodness and grace pass before us. Change us into the image of Jesus. For your glory we ask it. Amen. All right, so we're going to be beginning in verse 7. Are you all enjoying the Gospel of Mark so far? You can say amen. Mark, Mark's Gospel is an action-oriented Gospel. Uh, it... And more than that, it's when we talk about Mark's gospel, you, you may know that although it was written by the hand of Mark, it reflects the memory of Peter, the, the lead apostle, if you will. And so, and the gospel was written, most, most people believe it was written in the mid-60s. And what was going on at that time was uh, in the Roman Empire, there was an emperor named Nero who was a little crazy. And there was a, a fire that started in Rome that was a, a tremendous, tremendous fire. And popular suspicion was that Nero was behind the fire. And so in order to get the, the focus off of him, he needed a scapegoat. And so he started blaming Christians. And during, and it's, it's known as the Neronian persecution. During his reign, there was an outbreak of persecution against the Christians because they were blamed for this. He, he took Christians and wrapped them in animal skins and threw them to wild dogs, and they would be torn to pieces. He took them and he crucified them in his garden, and he set them on fire to provide light for his garden. And so it was a time of extreme persecution. And most scholars believe that Mark's gospel was written as an encouragement and as a discipleship manual into for the persecuted Christians in Rome. And so Mark's gospel particularly presents Jesus, presents him as the son of God, presents him as one with authority, but it also presents him as the suffering servant. 
one who comes to serve through suffering. And so the gospel, when we read it, we're not just reading information about the life of Jesus, but what Mark says about the life of Jesus is intended to encourage us as we walk through the challenges of life, as we walk through suffering. So he's, all, he's giving us a, uh, a paradigm, a pattern for us to walk into in the model of Jesus. And so when we talk about missional focus, the big idea is that staying focused on the Christian mission requires consciously choosing who we will allow to influence us and who we will not. The Lord Jesus defines our mission and models these boundaries. So we're looking to the life of Jesus, not just to say he's amazing, which he is, but also that in some small way we would be able to model our lives after his. That We would be able to, to focus on the Christian mission with a kind of laser precision that Jesus himself focused on his mission. And so this is what I understand Jesus's model of ministry to be. Jesus ministered to the masses to make disciples of the few to multiply many worshipers to the glory of God. And that model of ministry is the same model of ministry that he hands down to us. We're going to begin in verse 7. First, we'll see that Jesus serves the crowds, but does not entrust himself to them. He chooses disciples to entrust uh, with himself, his message, and his mission. So beginning in verse 7, says this, it says that Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. And not only that, but a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. That geographical description, that describes all of Palestine at that time. So uh, Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, Beyond the Jordan to the east and Tyre and Sidon all the way to the west coast of the, the Mediterranean Sea. So the whole, so crowds followed him from all of these regions. And it says that they followed him, they came to him because they heard about everything that he was doing. So the crowds have no concern for Jesus, his message, or his mission. In, in the Gospels, the crowds are not portrayed as antagonistic or evil, but they are self-interested. They're portrayed as fickle, easily manipulated, and changeable. The same crowds that seek Jesus for his healing are the same crowds that will shout crucify on Good Friday. And so Jesus' response to these crowds, he says, Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, so that the crowd wouldn't crush him, since he had healed many, all who had, since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. I think we, we blow past this detail many times when we're reading, and we don't realize that this was an incredibly dangerous situation. In 1989, in Sheffield, England, at a soccer match, almost 100 people, 94 people were killed in a span of about 20 minutes in, when the crowd crowded into the goal pins at the, at the goal end of the field. And in about 20 minutes, almost 100 people were dead because 
they were excited about somebody kicking a ball into the goal. Crowds, no, nobody there was trying to kill anybody. Nobody had sinister motives, but they were so focused on their own concern that the mob mentality is unable to consider the greater good, right? And so Jesus, while he ministers to the crowds with compassion and with love, and he's not against them, he does not entrust himself to them because he knows that the mob mentality is not trustworthy. And in the, in the Gospels, the crowd, we might say, is the world. It's the harvest field. It's the place where Jesus goes to call people out from the world to follow him. But as long as they're in the crowd, they, are, they just can't be trusted to be concerned about him. And so he, doesn't, he never allows the crowd to set his agenda. And Mark, in this passage, he even gives us a contrast. He shows us that the unclean spirits, they know how to respond to Jesus, the Son of God, better than the crowds do. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. And so Jesus uh, cannot entrust himself to the crowd. But he loves them and he serves them compassionately. Uh, One verse that comes to mind is John chapter 2. See if I can turn there real quick. At the end of John chapter 2, there's this very interesting statement. And again, it has to do with these crowds. It says, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus, yes, he loves the crowd. He serves them with compassion, but he does not entrust himself to them. He does not allow them to set the agenda for his ministry. This continues to be a challenge for us because we live in a world. We live in a broken world, right? If this past week showed us that, is, are we sure 2020 is over? Seems like it, it's, it just keeps going. We live in a broken world. And especially if you're someone who follows the news, we can be absolutely inundated with the need of the world. There is hurt everywhere. And we, as followers of Christ, we are called to reach into this brokenness, to reach into this hurting world and serve with love and compassion. But if we take Uh, love and compassion and leverage it on felt needs only and not proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are shortchanging the world. We, As the church, we have to be reminded that the need for reconciliation with God is every bit as urgent as the need for full bellies and warm clothes. It is an urgent need. And so we cannot buy into this worldly thinking that we can we can enter into partnerships where we compromise the proclamation of the gospel in order to meet physical needs, thinking that somewhere down the road, maybe we'll have the opportunity to share the message of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Every soul who dies apart from Christ enters into an eternity apart from God in hell. Forgiveness of sins is an urgent need. And we need to treat it with the same urgency that we treat uh, felt needs of people, physical needs, in moments of crisis like we've been experiencing. 
So by all means, let's reach out to the world with love and compassion, but let's not forget to proclaim the gospel because that's the mission that Jesus has given to the church. So staying focused. Y'all pray for me that I stay focused in this sermon. So the Lord Jesus sovereignly chooses those he desires to entrust with his message and mission. So he can't, he can't look to the crowds to set the agenda. He's got to set the agenda. And he chooses uh, those that he wants. Verse 13 says, Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. This, this section is loaded with sovereignty language. The, the big emphasis is on the, the sovereignty of Jesus in what's happening right now. Uh, it says he went up the mountain. That's an echo of somebody tell me. Moses. Moses went up the mountain. Exodus says that Moses went up the mountain in Exodus 19. And it says that God called him up the mountain. Mark has done something interesting here. Jesus goes up the mountain. Jesus, the son of God, he goes up the mountain but then he calls down the mountain and he summons up those that he wanted. So he's, Mark has positioned Jesus as the one greater than Moses who ascends the mountain, but he's also speaking as God to summon those that he wants. That's pretty cool. And they came to him. He appointed twelve whom he also named apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So this is, this is the mission mandate that Jesus gives to his apostles, that they would be with him in a personal relationship. We're going to go over these in a minute. To send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now remember, Mark is writing this gospel uh, about 20, 20 or so years after Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. The apostles would have been like rock stars. And so this, this listing, if you had been one of the original readers of Mark's gospel, this listing would have been like uh, a WWE introduction. He would have said, he had the rock. And then there was the sons of thunder. Right? So it's like the, the, they, these guys would have been well-known personalities that people in the early church would have known, and they they and we know we know that uh, their popularity even created factions from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, right? There were some people saying I'm of the Rock, some people saying I'm of Apollos, and Paul said, "Did did Apollos die for you? Did Peter die? For you? Only Jesus died for you." So there's only there's only one fan club in Christianity, and it's the Jesus fan club. But my point is is that these would have been well-known personalities that the early church would have recognized. They would have been famous. And what Mark says is that he appointed the twelve. Again, sovereignty language. In, in uh, Greek, this word is literally, he made the twelve. You see in the movies where the celebrity fires his agent, and the agent says, I made you. You're nothing without me. What do they mean? They mean that, you are successful because of my influence, because of my relational network. I made you who you are. Well, in Greek, it's literally what it says. He made the twelve. The twelve apostles, so famous in the early church, they are who they are. They are what they are by Jesus' initiative, 
by his sovereign choice and by his decision to choose them. And what is true of them is true of believers today. There is no one who comes to follow Christ without being chosen by Christ and being called by Christ. In uh, Paul's letters, the, the word call is almost a synonym for salvation. When he talks about your calling, being called by God, he's talking about that time when God call, drew you to salvation and you responded. Uh, theologians call it the effectual calling of God. Uh, and so Jesus made the twelve. He established them. So there was Simon Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, son of John, the sons of Thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And again, we remember that Judas Iscariot didn't volunteer to follow Jesus. Judas Iscariot was chosen by Jesus. He was the one chosen to be the traitor. And they, these guys were chosen for a purpose, which we saw just a minute ago. First, they were chosen for a relational purpose, that they would be with Jesus. Every disciple is called to first be in personal relationship with Jesus, that Jesus would do an internal work in our hearts that works its way out into our lives. So that means spending time with Jesus, but I think it means even more than that. You know, when Paul talks about praying without ceasing, it means that we are with Jesus, that we consciously identify with Jesus, that we are consciously in communion with Jesus. Uh, throughout our day and in our lives. They were chosen for a representative purpose. I know that the, the word send in English doesn't look much like the word apostle, but they are actually the same word. Apostle is the noun and send is the verb. So when it says that he named them apostles, an apostle is one who is sent with authority. One who is sent out to be a representative of another. And so he set them apart, he chose them, that he could send them out to preach. Back in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was kicking off his ministry and, and he was getting crazy popular, it says that the crowds were gathering around. It says early in the morning, while it was dark, while the, the crowds were sleeping, Jesus slipped away and he went out into the wilderness to spend time with God. And when the disciples found him, they said, Lord, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus' response was, let's go to the neighboring towns and villages so that I can preach there also. He said, because that is why I came. So he doesn't say, let's go back to where the crowds are, where the crowds are looking for me, where, 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 where they're screaming my name. He says, let's go to the people where I've not yet preached, where I've not yet proclaimed the kingdom of God. Jesus placed a priority on proclamation. Again, he served the masses with love and compassion, but his compassion ministry was a platform for proclaiming salvation and the kingdom of God. It's so important that we keep this uh, in perspective because the, the world around us will constantly call us to compromise, constantly call us to uh, forsake the preaching of the gospel uh, just for the sake of doing good. And then third, he called them for a redemptive purpose. 
to have authority to drive out demons, he says, I think we can think about this. It is authority to drive out demons. I believe that believers today have that authority from Jesus just as much as they did then. Uh, But we can also think about it in broader perspective. We can think about it in terms of all that it is that Christians do to work redemptively in the world. That's what Jesus has given us to do. Again, to pursue those opportunities to, to do good to people, to, to provide for them in need. And as we work redemptively in the world, we gain credibility to proclaim the message of Jesus. And so the two go hand in hand. And I believe that especially in, a, in the society that we live in, where, where people, people don't assume the God of the Bible as God. There are so many different perspectives and so many uh, different viewpoints in our society that we, I believe that service is going to be more important than ever in the years ahead. That our proclamation of the gospel always be accompanied by good works to people. Um, Because it's just, people don't respect the gospel. They don't respect the God of the Bible the way that they did in generations past. And so we've got to be more intentional about earning the right to be heard through love and good works toward hurting people. This model that Jesus gave, uh, the Apostle Paul took it this way. So Jesus chose, he, he, he served the many in order to make disciples of a few, in order to multiply many. And we see that the Apostle Paul here in 2 Timothy, he took the same approach. He says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. So it wasn't just true for the apostles. It was So Jesus did it. The apostles did it. The Apostle Paul continued that. And the church today is to do the same thing. To stay focused on this ministry that Jesus has given to us. So again, we minister to the masses, we to make disciples of the few, to multiply many worshipers of Jesus to the glory of God. We have to keep the glory of God in view. Uh, that we, we're not merely motivated by compassion for people, although we, we do feel compassion for people who are hurting. Uh, we, I know that I really appreciate it when people are compassionate toward me. Um, but that the glory of God that people would recognize the worth and the beauty, the truth and goodness of God, and that they would come to worship him for who he is. You know, that's really, Jesus, when he came, he was constantly correcting people's misperceptions about what God is like, about what the kingdom of heaven is like. He said, I know the world you live in is like this, but that's not what the kingdom of heaven is like. We're inviting people into a new experience, a new way of living where we manifest the glory of God. Uh, John Piper, I remember in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he says, missions exist because worship does not. Our goal is to take the gospel out to bring people to the worship of the one true and living God and that they may find their greatest pleasure in God. And that's, that's the biggest claim of the Christian life that we have to hold to, that, that no matter what we lack in this life, no matter what we're suffering, the greatest good, the greatest pleasure that we can experience is in a living relationship with God. That's a hard sell to a world 
uh, that's as broken as ours. But that's what we have to confidently proclaim. And that's why Jesus called his apostles to be with him. We've got to experience that ourselves in a relationship with Christ before we can convincingly say it to anybody else. Amen? All right, moving on to the second half. Stay in focus. Jesus resists the influence of those who would hinder his ministry and mission. He draws into closest relationship those who do the will of God. So we saw that Jesus has a certain relationship with the crowds. He loves them. He serves them. But he does not allow them to set the agenda. And then we're going to see in this section that there are some who, from good motives or bad motives, try to hinder Jesus' ministry, and he resists them. He marginalizes their influence. First, in verses 20 and 21, it says, With, uh, with good intentions, Jesus, his family seeks to remove Jesus from his ministry. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. Again, the crowd's not trying to keep Jesus from eating, but the crowd is just interested in getting what the crowd wants. And they're so pressing in, they're so occupying Jesus and the disciples, they're, they're not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. Can you believe that? Sweet Mother Mary, Mother of God, full of grace, wanted Jesus to leave the ministry because they thought he's out of his mind. He's overdoing it. He's on himself. This verb, uh, to restrain him, they, they set out to restrain him. It's the same word that's used in Mark 14 of when they arrest Jesus. Judas tells uh, the mob with him, they, he says, the one that I kiss sees him. Same word. Restrain him. Take custody of him. Jesus' family, they're doing an intervention. They think he's lost it. And so they're coming and they're going to take custody of him and take him home, take him home and take care of him. They, don't, they have good intentions. They're, what they're doing, they're doing out of affection for him, but they don't realize that they are getting in the way of God. Similar to uh, Peter's uh, objection, when Jesus tells Peter that I, the Son of Man has to be handed over and, deliver, uh, and, and to die, and Peter says, may it never be. You can't die. You're the Messiah. You're the one person who's crucial to establishing the kingdom of God on earth. And Jesus is surprising supply. So, so, I mean, Peter is, he's speaking out of love, right? He's speaking out of concern for Jesus. You can't die. You can't be killed. But Jesus' surprising reply is, get behind me, Satan. Because you're not focused on the interests of God, but on the interests of man. This is one of the hardest things uh, in our lives, I think that we often have people who love us, who want us to tone down the Jesus rhetoric a little bit. They have maybe maybe you have people in your family who are not so cool with Jesus, and you've got somebody in your family who wants to make peace and they want everything to just be okay, and so they want you just to kind of could you just kind of tone it down this Thanksgiving? Could you just kind of not talk about? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll let you pray when it's time to eat, but just you don't have to, to go there, do you? Out of good intentions, out of, out of love, uh, people ask us to, to restrain ourselves. And then secondly, uh, with bad intentions, the scribes seek to undermine Jesus' credibility. And they say he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. He's demon-possessed. And so this is how Jesus responds. He responds first to the scribes with direct confrontation. 
And what the scribes are doing, they see the same evidence of Jesus' ministry, that he's casting out demons, that he's bringing life and joy, and he's healing people, and they say, this is the work of the devil. And so Jesus, because they're spinning the facts, because they're offering a distorted interpretation of reality, and they're seeking to lead people astray, Jesus directly confronts them, and he says, he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. Notice the authority word there. Same word that he used when he called his disciples to himself. He summoned them. So it's from this position of authority that he has as the Son of God that he's going to set them straight. And he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. Jesus says, what you're saying is illogical. Is it, is it Satan's agenda that people would be set free from bondage? Is it Satan's agenda that people would have life and joy and peace? He said, it's, uh, your argument is absurd. I would, um, I, what I'm doing goes directly against uh, Satan's agenda. And so he gives a corrected interpretation to their distortion. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. So he says, you're spinning reality. This is how you really should interpret what you're seeing, that I have conquered the devil, that I have overcome, I have tied him up, and I'm going to take whatever I want out of his house. And then he has this pronouncement, a warning against them, where he says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus, he's operating by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and they're claiming that that the spirit that he's operating by is demonic. And so Jesus, uh, he says that they never have forgiveness. Now, what he does not mean, and I think this is maybe a popular misconception. I know I've heard a lot of people ask questions about this, about this verse. He does not mean that you one time blaspheme the Holy Spirit or curse God. There are some people who have asked me, you know, there was one time when I was really angry at God and I cursed him and told him I didn't want to have anything to do with him. Did I commit the unforgivable sin? No. And, and the fact that you're even worried about it shows that you have not committed the unforgivable sin because God is still working in your heart to get your attention. And so the unforgivable sin is not this one-time act of disrespecting God or disrespecting the Holy Spirit, but it's this committed resolve, this committed orientation of the heart to reject Jesus even when presented with clear evidence. Of God's, of, of God's goodness and God's work. And so these, these scribes were so concerned with maintaining their own influence and their own power, their goal was to undermine the influence of Jesus. Their goal was to, to make Jesus irrelevant. And so they're just spinning. Y'all probably have had the experience when you listen to, maybe you listen to a news channel that you don't agree with or you're reading on social media and there's something that's happened and you think you're, you're pretty sure you know the facts, and yet what they're saying on this social media or whatever is, seems to be totally different 
than what you understand the facts to be. And it even seems like this person has to be intentionally distorting things in order to get a reaction, in order to stir people up. It's basically the same thing. They're so, these people are so committed to maintaining their own influence and their own power, they're willing to distort the truth about Jesus. And so Jesus says the person who is committed to that course, there's, there is no possibility of forgiveness because the only way that you can find forgiveness is by turning in repentance to Jesus Christ, right? So whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Also, another, another analogy we might think of here is like it's one thing to, if you had a disease and, you, and there's a cure and there's a physician who has a cure, but you, because of your own pride or your own skepticism of the cure, you refuse to go to receive this cure. So that's one thing. That's bad enough. You're, you're going to die. But how much worse would it be if you get on social media and you start saying, this doctor's a quack. Don't listen to him. Don't take this uh, medicine, this cure for this, uh, this disease. And so they're, they're not only are they uh, condemning themselves, but they're also, and this is why Jesus is reacting so strongly against it, they're not just condemning themselves, but they're trying to lead other people into the same condemnation. This section is uh, what we, I call it a sandwich story. Because one, one narrative is interrupted by another narrative, and then it concludes. And so basically this one, we have the introduction to Jesus' family, and then we have his interaction with the scribes, and then we come back to his family. So verse 31 says, His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. They got, you know, uh, James got the car running. They're going to, as soon as he comes out, they're going to throw him in the car and head back to uh, Bethlehem or wherever, uh, Nazareth. And uh, so they sent word, they're outside asking for you. And he replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, Listening to his teaching, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus clarifies that his primary allegiance, his primary loyalty, his primary commitments are not to biological family, but to the surrogate family of God that he has placed around him by God's sovereign choice, calling people out, choosing and calling people out to follow Jesus it's those that become his uh, circle of primary allegiance, primary loyalty. This is, an, like I say, this is a, a hard truth for us uh, in our culture. And just like with the crowds, it does not mean that Jesus doesn't love his family. It doesn't mean that he's not loyal to them in terms of his, his family obligations to them. You know, his, his last act before he died was to make sure that his mother would be cared for. When he looked to the, the disciple that he loved and said, pointed to his mother and said, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He said, John, make sure that she's taken care of. So the last thing he did before he died. So Jesus was covenantally loyal to his family. He loved his family. So we're not saying that we, we should not love our families. What we are saying is that 
if the interests of the family conflict with the interest of Jesus, Jesus comes first. Always. And so looking around the circle at those sitting around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And so our application, stay focused. And so this is where we think about how do we follow the model of Jesus that he's laid out for us uh, in the gospel. So one, we stay focused by refusing to allow the world to dictate our mission as a follower of Christ. We definitely look at the suffering even. We enter in to serve the world with love and compassion. But we remember that Jesus' purpose is not merely to meet the felt needs of the world, but Jesus' purpose is that people would be called out of the world to be disciples, his disciples, and to be in a relationship with God for everlasting life. And so we don't allow the world to dictate our mission. We don't compromise to pressure of people who want us to come alongside them as long as we won't talk about Jesus. Stay focused, secondly, by resisting the influence of those who discourage you from following Jesus with radical commitment, even when their intentions are good. You need to lovingly push back uh, when people who love you ask you to to, to tone it down for Jesus. Uh, I don't think there's... We have, to, we have to communicate ourselves with love, we have to communicate ourselves with grace, but we have to communicate. We have to, we have to, the world needs to know that Jesus is first, Jesus last, and Jesus only in our hearts and in our lives. So we need to lovingly push back. Uh, and then in the case of those who, the skeptics, the haters, the mockers, the scoffers, uh, there may be times when we, we need to confront them directly. You know, there there. are People out there right now writing books who say that God is morally reprehensible for the things that he commanded Israelites to do in the Old Testament. They say that the cross, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus is divine child abuse. I mean, they say they say crazy things. And so those sorts of things need direct confrontation when they're designed to lead people astray from Jesus. Again, we've got to communicate it in love. Uh, you know... One thing that I see happening with social media is everybody communicates so poorly on social media that I now hear Christians advocating that maybe we shouldn't engage on social media. Maybe we should just not do a moratorium on, on social media. But I think that's an overreaction. So just because people are having uncivil discourse does not mean that we should not attempt to engage in civil discourse. We have to be outspoken, and we have to answer the challenges to the Christian faith that are out there. But we've got to do it in love and respect and gentleness. And then finally, stay focused by seeking deep, meaningful relationships with growing believers who encourage and challenge you toward Christ-likeness in thought, word, and action. Jesus said, when he looked around, he said, The one who does the will of God is my mother and my sister and my brother. He's saying that our primary relationships, our primary influencers ought to be found within the church. If your primary relationships are not with believers, if your primary relationships are with people outside the church, you're meaning you're being influenced by them, you're opening yourself to their influence, the people who you admire the most, the people who you seek to model your life after the most, if those people are not people who are seeking God, people who know Jesus, 
Y'all, that's a problem. Our primary relationships need to be in the body of Christ. We need to find people who are at least as passionate about Jesus as we are and lock arms with them and run together toward Jesus. For me, I, I didn't. I grew up in a nominally Christian home. One of the greatest relationships in my life was uh, an electrical engineer who was the director of my Sunday school class when I was a new believer. And he came to me after I'd been a believer for a few months, and he said, he said I just see that, that God is working in you, and I would really like to help you grow. And he invited me to start meeting with him, and, and he and I met on Wednesday mornings at 5 a.m. for five years. And he, to this day, he is one of the most important people in my life. And uh, he and I, he lives in the southeast, he lives in Alabama, so we don't talk frequently. But I can tell you that whenever I am confronted with a big decision to make, he is top of mind. He's the guy I'm going to call. I'm going to say, I'm going to call Brett and see what he thinks about this. Um, because he's got that kind of influence in my life. He's poured into me. My prayer for you all is that you would all have that kind of relationship. Someone who is just a go-to because you know their walk with God. I, I mentioned that I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian family. I think that Brett was a strong believer, Christian uh, husband, father, leading his family well, being, walking with him and get, being exposed to his family just helped to shape the way that I saw the world. It helped, gave me a new, a new perspective that I just didn't have from, from my family of origin. So anyway, I, I hope that you'll, you'll have those kinds of relationships and that you'll seek out one another. If you, maybe you're at this place and you don't, uh, you don't have those kinds of relationships just start in inviting someone that you respect, someone who seems to be walking with the Lord. Invite them to lunch. Just work on beginning relationships that way. And don't get discouraged if the first one doesn't stick. Just keep, keep inviting people. All right, so I'm going to close in prayer and ask again that the Lord would uh, just help us to stay focused on the mission that he's given us, that we wouldn't compromise. There, again, there's so many voices out there. We've got to know who we are. And, and who Jesus has called us to be. And we've got to walk with an unrelenting determination to be faithful to that calling. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I just ask uh, right now that in, out of anything that's been said, Father, that you would move in the hearts of those here um, with a renewed commitment to follow Jesus and maybe even a, a new clarification about what it is that we're supposed to be doing. God, we can get caught up in the humdrum of life and we, we get into the rhythms of going to church and maybe even reading our Bible and praying, but we're not thinking in terms of mission. We're not thinking in terms of what it is that you've really called us to accomplish as the church and how we can intentionally and strategically give ourselves toward that work and, uh, and sometimes, God, these voices from outside, whether it's the voice of the hurting masses, whether it's the voice of people we love, or whether it's the voices of those who are mocking us, God, we can get intimidated. We can get derailed. We can, our focus can get turned away. We can allow ourselves to become silent in moments when we ought to speak. I know it's true of me, God. I'm guilty. And I just ask for everyone here that you would... Bring clarity around the mission that you've called us to. That you would not allow us uh, to, to waste our lives. That we, when we appear before you, 
on Judgment Day, like Paul, we want to have something to offer you, that our lives were, were meaningful to others for, eternal, for eternity and not just for here and now. So would you help us? We need, we need your grace. We need you to, to fill our minds, fill our hearts, and give us focus day in and day out that we could focus faithfully on the work that you've given us to do. I'm reminded of uh, when, I, when I was in seminary, I took a class on Bible study methods, and they told us that every, every day you're going to be expected to produce demonstrable results. And uh, God, I, I just feel that need uh, for my own life, that I would not let a day pass without, without pursuing results for you. And I know that we're not in control. You're the one who gives fruit. We are only branches connected to the vine. But we believe, God, that you want to see fruit in our lives. We believe that you want to see fruit in this church. And so, God, as we yield ourselves, as we abide in the vine, we just ask that you would bring fruit and that we would see real results. So burn it in our hearts. Give us vision. May we live with intentionality and passion to accomplish the work you've given us to do. We ask it in Jesus' name.